0: It was the early part of the autumn in southern England. The year was 1861. And within the span of only eight days, there were two separate train accidents that claimed a total of 39 lives and injured another 493 people. The first accident involved a passenger train colliding with another train inside a tunnel. And then just eight days later, the second accident involved another separate passenger train running headlong into a freight train. Again, a total of 39 lives had been lost in these accidents with several additional injuries. The first accident in the tunnel had happened on a Sunday, and there were some in London who quickly concluded that that was the reason why the accident happened. The conclusion was that no one should be traveling on a Sunday, it is the Lord's Day. God punished the passengers with the collision because they should have been in worship and not on the train. The passengers suffered this calamity because they sinned by riding a train on Sunday. So went the argument. Well, at the moment when these train accidents happened, Charles Spurgeon was eight years into his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the City of London, On the Sunday that followed the second train accident, Spurgeon chose to preach a sermon that he titled Accidents, Not Punishments. And In that sermon, Spurgeon pointed out that that even the most godly person who is devoted to the Lord may end up suffering an accident like the people in the tunnel did. The world is full of examples of the righteous perishing suddenly. Just as we have so many stories of wicked people perishing suddenly, disasters tend not to discriminate. In the sermon, Spurgeon talked about the great deep. the words that he used, the great deep of God's providence, that it's foolish for us to make basic calculations and conclusions about what God is doing in a disaster like those people had when they had concluded that Sunday travel was the reason for the accident. It's unwise for us, unwise for, for us to pretend that we know why calamities happen i want to quote just one sentence from spurgeon's sermon where he warns us not to be hasty in our conclusions about the reasons for suffering and the reasons for calamity in this world here's what spurgeon said among many other things he said scripture teaches us that divine providence is a great depth in which the human intellect may swim and dive but it can neither find a bottom nor a shore. And if you and I pretend that we can find out the reasons of providence and twist the dispensations of God over our fingers, we only prove our folly but we do not prove that we have begun to understand the ways of God." In this this sermon by Spurgeon, he went on to argue from Scripture that, that when we hear of tragedies, when we hear of calamities, when we hear reports like the train accidents where all those people died, our response should not be to conclude on reasons for it, but rather our response should be personal repentance amen personal repentance our response should be to say to ourselves that could have been me in that tunnel why couldn't it have been me do i have some sort of immunity on this earth to tragedies like that am i somehow less of a sinner then those people were in the tunnel and, and, and thus I'm exempt from such tragedies. No, a thousand times no. The best posture that I can have in my life is a posture of, listen, abiding repentance. Abiding repentance, ready at any moment, including this very day, at any moment to meet him just like those people met him when their train suddenly collided with the other train. When we lived in Calgary, one of our church members at Renfrew Baptist was a a Calgary police officer who worked in the area of traffic. He would attend uh, traffic scenes where there were fatalities. And I remember him saying to me once, you know, Brent, you arrive at the accident scene and it hits you, this person lying dead behind the airbag may simply have been on her way to the store with no idea whatsoever that her death was coming so suddenly that day. My friends, it could be us behind that airbag us in the train tunnel we live we must live as christians we must live every hour in a posture of repentance before the lord ready to meet him whenever our hour to meet him will come and it will come unless he comes back first jesus has been heading resolutely toward jerusalem since the end of luke chapter 9 One day on his way to Jerusalem, he was preaching to a crowd and some in the crowd spoke up suddenly and they told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So get the scene, he's in a crowd, he's preaching and suddenly these people tell him about this. Now get this friends, here is a crowd of people listening to Jesus preach on Jewish territory that is currently occupied by the foreigner Pilate and his government. So attitudes toward Pilate were already very negative. People were fed up with Rome, They were fed up with Rome's occupation of their land. The word Pilate had already left a very bad taste in everyone's mouth. And now here come these people talking to Jesus, essentially pouring gasoline on a fire that's already burning. They raise this story of an atrocity that Pilate has committed against Galilean Jews. Now, we don't have any specific details about the precise event that had happened, but we can surmise that as these Jewish people in the story, as these Jewish people had been offering up their animal sacrifices in the temple, Pilate had ordered some of his men to go in suddenly and cut them down right in that moment so that their blood was shed on top of the animal blood. This was a total outrage. This was a monstrous act on the part of Pilate. And now you can feel the crowd around Jesus at this moment getting riled up and getting agitated. Jesus is there listening. Jesus is Galilean. Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem in this moment, where this atrocity had presumably taken place. It seems clear here that the ones who are giving this report, what do they want? They want Jesus to be as outraged as they are. They want Jesus to condemn Pilate in the harshest possible terms and then get on with the revolution toward these Romans. Down with the Romans. Jesus, if your national loyalty is anything at all, then lead the charge and let's go right now to Jerusalem and whip these Romans. But now watch this, friends, somewhere in that phrase that phrase that reads, they told him about the Galileans. Somewhere in that phrase, somewhere in that part of their reporting, these reporters apparently had mentioned something about the slain Galileans deserving what they got because of their sin. Because that's precisely what Jesus picks up on in his response now in verse 2. Watch this. Jesus here, he's not interested at all in fomenting a rebellion against Pilate. He wants to address something instead that these reporters have said as they described the Galileans. Verse 2. And he answered them, essentially, wait a minute my reporter friends do you think you honestly think that these Galileans were worse sinners get that than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way are you saying my reporter friends that these Galileans slain by Pilate suffered in this way because their sin was particularly heinous. Are you taking the same erroneous position that Job's friends Eliphaz and Bildad did when they suggested to Job that his suffering must have come because of his sin? Are you taking the same position that my disciples did when they concluded that the man born blind must have been born that way because either of his own sin because of that or possibly because of the sin of his parents. Are are you taking that position? Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What's Jesus doing here? He's putting his finger on the faulty theology of the reporters. And he says in verse three, No, I tell you, no. It's not that these Galileans suffered this atrocity because they were worse sinners than the rest, but, Jesus says, and listen to what he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Woe. The concern of Jesus Christ our Lord here is our repentance. Are you with me? Is our repentance. The concern of Jesus here is that when we hear reports and we do almost every day when we hear reports in this world of great earthquakes in populated areas, killing thousands of people, when we hear reports of mass shootings, when we hear reports of sudden deaths by car accident, when we hear reports of terrorist bombings or, or human tragedies of any kind in this passing age, his concern is that we not play armchair theologian and conclude on the reasons for those tragedies, but rather Listen, that we personally repent. That's the order of the day that we repent. That seeing those tragedies, hearing of those tragedies, we turn from our sin and turn toward God, amen? What is it to repent? To repent is to change the whole orientation of our life. To change the direction of our life. Daryl Bach has put it like this quote, repentance is not an emotion or a mere mental assent to a proposition. It is, he says, a re- reorientation to a new life. He goes on. To repent is not merely to regret things we have done or to apologize for them or to recognize. A wrong has been committed to repent is to agree that a change of direction is required and then to respond accordingly to agree that a change of direction the whole orientation of my life needs a direction change and then to respond accordingly yes indeed repentance friends is about a radical turning sharp turning from those things that are hindering our devotion to God, no matter what they might be, recognizing those things, what are they, and then asking God, getting on our knees and asking him for cleansing, asking him for forgiveness, turning toward God in faith, in dependence, in devotion, in obedience to bear fruit. Jesus says, unless you repent, unless you turn radically away from your sin and toward God during this time, this precious time that you have been given on this earth, you will all likewise perish. Now, what exactly does our Lord mean here with this phrase, you will all likewise perish let's think together on this word likewise for a minute the word likewise means in the same way in the same way so then is jesus saying that unless we repent we too will die in the same way as the galileans we will all be offering up our animal sacrifices and the Romans will come in and approach us and kill us. Is that what likewise perish means? No. I don't think you can make that argument at all. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus means here. Nor does he mean unless we repent, we too are going to die regardless of the form of death like the Galileans died. Here, they died, you'll die too unless you repent. That's not what Jesus means either because everyone dies, right? Repentant or unrepentant. It would be sort of meaningless for Jesus to confirm the general truth that we will die here. So then what did Jesus mean here with this word likewise? Well, I'm going to lay my cards out. I follow uh, the argument of John Piper here He's done some very thoughtful work on this. And I want to quote him because I think his explanation is very helpful. Listen carefully to this. Piper says that by likewise, Jesus means this. Quote, You see what a horrible end those Galilean people came to. They didn't think it was going to happen. Oh, they knew they were going to die someday, but they didn't know what that would mean. The horror of their end took them by surprise. Well, unless you repent, that is the way it is going to be for you. Your end will be far more horrible than you think it is. You will not be ready for it it will surprise you terribly in that sense you will likewise perish so that the likewise here and that's the end of the quote from piper the likewise here is is getting at the shock and surprise nature of the Galilean's death. Just as the moment of death had come suddenly, had come unexpectedly to those very unaware people not ready for it when it came so suddenly, in the same shocking manner, the unrepentant person will be totally unprepared for the moment of death and shocked when it comes. The unrepentant person, unrepentant person perishes physically at death, just as the repentant person also perishes physically at death. But for the unrepentant person, the perishing, listen, the perishing won't stop. At physical death. For the unrepentant person there is what Scripture calls, in Revelation, the second death. There is the judgment of God upon dying that sends the unrepentant person into the eternal, eternal condition of being separated from God This is eternal punishment. Hell. My friends, Jesus calls each and every one of us who are yet drawing breath in this lifetime to repent. It makes no difference who you are. If you are a person who does not turn from your sin and toward God in this lifetime that you have been given, you will experience a shocking hour upon your physical death. I'm just the messenger today. You will perish eternally. And so the heralding from this pulpit today is to repent. That's really the message. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This this is the response that Jesus gives to those reporters who had brought the atrocity report of Pilate killing the Galileans. Those Galileans, they were not worse sinners than the rest and your personal focus must not be on whether they were worse sinners or not. Your focus, whenever you hear of such tragedies taking place around you in this world, your focus must be squarely on your own personal repentance. That's where you need to go. When you hear of the train colliding in the tunnel, killing all those people. When you hear of a hurricane devastating an area of the West Indies. When you hear of several concert goers being trampled to death at World, When you hear of such things, yes, consider whatever humanitarian, compassionate response you may have power to provide. But you must also ask yourself very seriously, am I ready in this very hour to meet my maker? Am I somehow immune from such tragedy happening to me? And have I in fact repented of my rebellion against God and turned to him for the eternal life that he offers me in his grace so that I will not perish after I die, but live eternally with him in his presence where there are pleasures evermore." Watch what Jesus does in verse 4 now. He brings up a second tragedy story to add to the first one about Pilate killing the Galileans. He says, "...or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Obviously, this is another piece of headline news that the crowd around Jesus knew very well about. Apparently, a large tower had collapsed, crumbled to the ground, probably due to disrepair, killing 18 people. Jesus asks here, do you think that those 18 people were worse offenders? than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. Again, what's Jesus doing here? What's he saying? He's saying, when you see catastrophes and calamities happening around the world that claim lives, you are not to concern yourself with the degree of sin in those people who died, as if maybe they deserved the calamity more than other people. Not the degree, rather concern yourself with the presence of sin in your own life and repent. And Jesus repeats in verse five exactly what he said in verse three, no, I tell you, no, those 18 who were crushed by the falling tower were not worse sinners than the rest, but what? Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Again, friends, for the unrepentant, death will come with a big shock as they find themselves eternally separated from God. When you hear of calamities, repent. Calamities are a call from God in His grace, a call from God to you to repent, to get right with Him. And then Jesus, watch this, he connects everything that he's just said with a four-verse parable beginning at verse 6. Let's read the whole parable in one breath. He says, this is the parable, man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, For three years now, three years, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, fertilizer. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now, as Jesus tells this parable, I think it's quite obvious that he is basing it on the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter five. The basic picture in Isaiah five verses one through seven is a picture, listen, a picture of God planting a vineyard and tending the vineyard, but getting only bad fruit out of the vineyard. And so God's response to the yield of bad fruit in Isaiah five is to destroy the vineyard and make it a wasteland. And in Isaiah five verse seven, God explicitly identifies the vineyard. He says in Isaiah five seven, that the nation of Israel Is the vineyard producing bad fruit? Now, one thing we notice in the Isaiah 5 context is that God is the one, God is the one who both plants and tends the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, Yahweh of Israel, God of Israel, is both planter and vine dresser. So, with that in mind, I think as we read Jesus' version of the story in Luke 13, and here I'm following Kenneth Bailey, I think we should not take the conversation, listen, we should not take the conversation that happens in the parable as a conversation between the Father God, who is the planter, and the Son of God who is the vine dresser. I don't think we should read the conversation in the parable as a conversation that happens between father and son because if we do, we are going to end up in some real theological difficulty as if father and son are at odds. Rather, we should read this conversation that takes place in the parable as Kenneth Bailey has read it and that is to read it as an internal debate within the heart of God, a debate in the heart of God between mercy and judgment, between offering clemency and executing judgment. The debate in the heart of God is this, will I cut down the fig tree in judgment for its lack of fruit? Or, shall I leave the fig tree planted in the earth in my mercy, giving it additional help, in the hope that it will yet bear fruit? The parable, I think, represents this internal dialogue in the heart of God himself. Now, do we have scriptural warrant for making such an argument? Yes, I think we do. In hosea 11 verses 8 and 9 we listen in in that passage as god debates within himself whether judgment or mercy should be handed out and given in those two verses of hosea god mentions both the compassion that he has for his people and in the same breath the burning anger he has for his people compassion and burning anger in the Hosea passage God wonders aloud what he should do with his people and in the end compassion wins out amen (laughs) mercy wins out though God might have come very well in his wrath on his disobedient people he ended up exercising compassion exercising mercy Again, the parable in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, seems to be a picture of the internal debate in the heart of God between mercy and judgment on fruitless people. And what we end up with in the parable as the parable closes, the final two verses, what we end up with is the mercy of God right at the end of the parable, the persevering patience of God. Oh hallelujah for that, the persevering patience of God with fruitless people. Now listen, let's walk through this. Typically when you planted a fig tree in the ancient Near East, you would allow uh, the little sapling to grow for three years. You would leave it completely alone, three years of growth. Then for another three years, you would continue to leave it alone because for those next three years any fruit on your fig tree was considered forbidden according to leviticus 19 verses 23 and 24 no fruit on the tree was to be accessed considered holy until the seventh year of the tree's existence so in our parable then when in verse 6 the man comes seeking fruit on the tree And finding none that's at least the seventh year of the tree's life because in Israel you didn't seek fruit on the tree until year seven and then when he says in verse 7 he sought fruit on the tree for three years notice that means he sought fruit in year seven first year of seeking year eight and year nine and still nothing after nine years since the planting of the tree there was still zero fruit on the tree and so it was altogether reasonable wasn't it altogether logical to simply cut the tree down get rid of the thing nine years to bear fruit is enough time nine years to show productivity is enough time now it was time to lay the axe you think of john the baptist the axe is already laid at the root of the tree to lay the axe to the tree and chop it down now after nine years, why not? But the other side of God's heart, represented in the vine dresser, says, no, I won't touch this unfruitful tree. Oh, the mercy of God. I won't touch this unfruitful tree I'm going to delay even longer I'm going to dig around the tree and I'm going to put on fresh fertilizer in one last effort to get fruit out of it and if by year 10 there's still no fruit then fine I'll chop it down but but right now even though it might not make any sort of logical sense I'm going to remain optimistic expectant even with the nine years of nothing I'm going to remain hopeful for fruit for one more year. Come on, tree! Give me those figs." Now, friends, can you see in the parable, I hope you can see, the big theme of delay. Delaying. Giving more time. The persevering patience of God. Well, in the original Isaiah 5 context, there had been no grace for the unfruitful vineyard. In Isaiah 5, there's just the promise to destroy the unfruitful vineyard. But in Jesus' version, in Luke 13, we have this grace, I hope we see it, this grace that is extended. There is more time given for fruit bearing. There is a delay afforded for what? for repentance. You and I, my friends, are given time as unfruitful trees to bear fruit, to repent, to turn to God, to come into a real and vibrant relationship with him, to abandon self-interest. To reorient ourselves to God centeredness, we are afforded time in this life, precious time, by a merciful God to turn from our moldy bread sinfulness to the steak and lobster banquet that is Jesus Christ. And the calamities and the disasters and the tragedies that happen all around us in our short life's Lifespan. They are all calls to us to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God gives us unfruitful trees, every nutrient, every bit of fertilizer that is required in order for us to bear fruit. He's done it all. He gives us power and he gives us mercy and he gives us leniency and he gives us time to show productivity for him and for his kingdom. And so my friend, the question is, how is he finding you this very day? Is he finding you bearing the fruit of worship? worshipful toward him, praising him for his faithfulness. Is he finding you acting in grace and benevolence and chesed toward your neighbor out of a thankful heart for the grace that you yourself have received? Are you bearing fruit? Are you engaged in works of mercy? Are you weeping with those who weep? and pointing them toward the Savior Jesus Christ. Are you bearing fruit? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident and obvious in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you bearing fruit? Or are you using up the ground that God has planted you in remember our parable why should this unfruitful tree use up the ground God gives us each time in this life to show fruitfulness for him having been given everything we need from him in order to bear fruit please remember this morning please remember that God has every right of proprietorship over your life. He created you, He owns you, and one day you will return to Him. He has every right to expect fruit from each and every one of us. And we must also remember this hard truth that God owes us nothing but the axe. Each and every one of us is under sin. As he declares in Romans 3, 9, none is righteous. No, not one. What we deserve from God is the axe. His condemnation his rejection his retribution on our sin that's what God owes us but in his son we ought to be shouting in worship in his son what he holds out to us is what sheer grace forgiveness an alien righteousness that is not our own And he affords us time precious time to be fruit bearers i need to make it clear that for the unrepentant person it won't be like this forever god's judgment and his chopping down won't be delayed forever time will run out and so now is the time my friend if you haven't already done so to bring your empty nothingness to God, to his throne, and to repent. To turn to him, turn away from your sin, reorient your entire life from self-centeredness to God-centeredness, confess your sin, and receive his forgiveness which has been provided in the crucified Christ. Bear fruit now in the power that he supplies before it is too late. Don't die unrepentant don't perish eternally live eternally in the lord and savior jesus christ beautiful savior and if you would like to talk further about any of these things i am happy to have a conversation with you after service point you to christ as are our leaders here let's pray together father in heaven i rejoice because so many sitting in this sanctuary perhaps the majority have repented have turned to you and away from sin and are walking with you in a vibrant relationship of faith each and every day lord but there may be one or two or three or several either here today or watching online who have not turned from self to god have not come and receive the forgiveness that has been afforded them on the cross of Christ. So I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's power that you would be pleased to bring others into the fold, even today, into your family. We pray these things and may you be glorified today. Amen.